Can everybody hear me? Okay, great. Um, just to connect this to George's talk, so I, I was a graduate student here at Stewart Observatory, got my PhD from the U of A, and my advisor's advisor's advisor was Frank Lowe. And um, it's funny, you, and because I got bored when I was writing my dissertation, I looked this up. You can trace this all the way back to Michelson and Mickelson. So I'm descended from Nobel Prize winners. <laughs> uh, but, and the other thing you should know is that uh, uh, I do most of my work now in the visible. At wavelengths you can see with your eye are very, very, uh, very close to wavelengths you can see with your eye. So I think Frank Lowe would disown me if he, if he knew me. So what I'm going to be talking about today is uh, a, a, a technique we call adaptive optics. And uh, the underlying science that, that uh, I'm motivated by here is, is characterizing extrasolar planets. And so this is a, a story of developing technology, uh, trying to do things that no one's ever done before so that we can learn more about planets. So who knows what planet I'm showing here? Saturn? Well, yeah, that's Saturn. But did you think I was going to ask you an easy question? <coughs> what else is in there? Yeah, we're there. See that little dot right there? No. <laughs> there, I'll put a circle around it. So Carl Sagan once said, that's here, that's home, that's us. So you are in that picture. This is a more recent image. Both of these are by the Cassini spacecraft, which orbited Saturn. This one, uh, when they took this one, NASA actually told us about it. It was a coordinated effort. And uh, I actually know where I was standing at the moment this image was taken. And you can see us right there. So if you're more than about four and a half years old, you're in this image. This is basically a, a million mile long selfie stick, if you know what that is. <laughs> when Sagan wrote those words, he was uh, speaking quite poetically about this image. This is the original pale blue dot. This was from Voyager, and, and it's kind of a, a special story. Like, it sounds like Sagan stormed into the office of the Voyager Control Center and demanded they turn around and take this picture. I think there was a little more effort put in, you know, a little more coordination put into that. But he realized that this would be this magical thing. And he was right. He called this uh, a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. And if you look at this pale blue dot, almost lost in the glare of our sun, this really sort of tells the story that I'm about to try to tell you in a bunch more words and a bunch more slides. We have this incredibly faint little planet almost completely lost in the glare of its star. And we have to figure out how to take an image like this of a planet that's not us, but a planet orbiting another star. So consider that mode of dust. We zoom in on it, you see home. And I dug through the NASA archives and picked this one particularly because it shows Tucson. So this is from a NASA satellite. And just take a moment and think about what you see when you look at this image and all the things you know about our world, about home. You can see we have water, we have continents, there's vegetation growing on those continents. There's clouds, which tells us there's water vapor in the atmosphere. You can tell there's weather, the clouds are swirling. If you watch this over time, you would see all this stuff moving. And if you had an instrument called a spectrograph that could split that light into its components and you could see the rainbow, if you will, of light, you would be able to tell that there was oxygen and methane and carbon dioxide. You would figure out that there was life on the surface of that planet. So, 
I'm going to tell you a little a short story here about the that I hope the takeaway for you is that we live in a remarkable time in human history because we are on the verge of being, an, be, being able to answer this question. Is this the only planet like this in the universe? Are we alone? So let me tell you a little bit about what we know. So just recently, sort of in the last 25 years, thanks to two really amazing techniques, we now know that our galaxy is crawling with planets. One of those techniques is called the radial velocity technique. And this beautiful animation by NASA is illustrating this. So what we do is we stare at a star, and we take the star's spectrum. And as this tiny little planet is orbiting the star, the star is wobbling. So even the Earth is tugging on our sun right now and causing it to wobble through space. And as you can see down here on the bottom, when it restarts, you'll see this spectrum of the star going through blue and red colors. This is the Doppler shift. This is just the same effect that if you say, pull over while a fire engine goes by, you hear its siren get, get higher than lower as it goes by. Only this is happening with light. And when we do this, we can measure the planet's mass. So now we know there's a planet there, and we have at least a minimum estimate of how much that planet weighs. The other technique, and this has become the dominant one recently, is called the transit technique. So this is when we're, we get very lucky, and this, the planet is perfectly aligned with our line of sight, and the planet passes in front of the star, the star blinks. It gets just noticeably fainter, and then we know there's a planet there, and we can also measure the planet's radius. So now we have some idea of how, how big the planet is. And it turns out that when this happens, we also get to usually do that radial velocity technique. So we also usually get a mass for the planet. So just to try to drive home how big a deal this is and what, what a scientific revolution we've all been alive for in the last 25 years, this is a plot of the number of planets humans know about versus time. So over here, going way back in time, we knew about five. These are the naked eye planets, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Saturn, and Jupiter. And then there's just a long period of time. And then this guy named Copernicus and a bunch of friends came along, and we got smart, and we realized we live on a planet. So now there are six planets in the universe. <laughs> <coughs> And then a little bit later, Galileo comes along. And now this long story that you've been hearing about this morning, and that I'm continuing to talk about, of astronomical instrumentation pushing our knowledge starts to develop. And a little bit later, we learn about Uranus and Neptune. There's all this dirty laundry with Pluto that happens in here. So right about here, we have eight, sometimes nine. Actually, we got up to 17 for a while because of the asteroid belt. But that's it. And then right here, just about 25 years ago, these amazing discoveries using the radial velocity technique and then the transit techniques start. And our knowledge of planets in the universe just shoots up to the point where we now have 3,700, and I just checked NASA's database last night at about 10 PM, 3,700 planets with 4,500-ish candidates, which the way to be assigned the candidate label, it means we're pretty sure. So we're now at the order of 7,000, 8,000 planets that we know about. This is incredible. This is a scientific revolution right here. And to sort of tell you what we, we know about this, and this is extrapolating from those statistics, when you look at this image, there are more planets that you can't see than stars that you can see. Our galaxy is just crawling with planets. Other galaxies 
are almost certainly crawling with planets. But what do we know about those planets? Do we actually have the information that, I'm, that I told you we can get out of an image like this? And the answer is we know almost nothing about them. Like I said, we know their minimum masses in some cases. We know their radii in other cases. Sometimes we know both. And with just a few exceptions, it's just this big blank circle with a question mark on it about what those planets are actually like. How, how hot are they? What kind of gases do they have in their atmosphere? What are their surfaces like? So what I'm going to tell you about now are some of the techniques, one of the, what I think is probably the most important technique we are developing right now that's going to try to answer this question in large numbers. So what's the problem? Why don't we just point our telescope at these stars and take these images? So on the ground, one of our big problems is atmospheric turbulence. So everybody knows that horrible song, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. For astronomers, that's terrible. So when we look at stars and they're twinkling, what it does is it makes this big blob. And this is an image of a star called Beta Pictoris. Beta means it's the second brightest star in the constellation Pictor. And you have to go pretty far south to see it. Um, if you'll let me editorialize, I think this is the dumbest constellation we have. It's just three stars that make a little line, and you're supposed to think it's a painter's easel. That's why it says Pictor. So this is Beta Pictor. So if we zoom in on this blob of light, would you believe me if I told you there was a planet in there? And so now I've drawn this red circle here. And this red circle has a diameter of one arc second. So that's an angle. And the way to think about an arc second if you right now pluck a hair from your head and hold it out at arm's length and squint at it, for sort of average human statistics, that hair is about an arc second across. And this circle, at the distance of this star, which is 19 parsecs, that circle is about 9 AU in radius. So it's about the same distance. So Saturn is orbiting right on the outside of that circle if this was the sun and we were 19 parsecs away. So that's kind of the scale we're talking about. Your hair covering Saturn at 19 parsecs. So the issue with atmospheric turbulence is that it blurs these images. That's why we have that big blob of light. And so what we do is this technique called adaptive optics. And I'm going to show you a video that illustrates this all together in a second. But the idea is when the light waves that should be flat lines come into our, you can think of these as waves rolling up on a beach, just kind of have that image. And imagine those waves are now all corrupted by the twinkling of the star. And that's because of temperature variations in the atmosphere over our telescopes between us and the star. So what we have to do is take a very thin piece of glass that we can push and pull on. And we deform it so that it takes exactly the, the correcting shape that will turn these uh, twinkling, corrupted wavefronts into flat lines. And so the effect is, you. This is what a, a very short, very rapid, like uh, about a millisecond long exposure of a, or image of a star would look like because of that. And you see these, what we call speckles. And you'll see this in the image I'm about to show. You'll see this swarm of speckles moving around. And then when we turn on AO, and this is a, what this is is a, a display from one of our uh, AO systems actually running in real time. And you, it's taking these shapes. And this is updating at 1,000 times a second. And when we turn that on, and you do kind of OK adaptive optics, and we call it adaptive optics because we're adapting our optics to the atmosphere. 
you get an image like this. So you've taken those speckles and you've sort of swept them up into a, into a, a core. So now you can see this getting sharper. And then if you have really good AO, which is what we do at Arizona, you get this image. And this is uh, basically about as uh, close to a perfect image as you, can, as you can take from the ground. You see this sharp circle in the middle with a ring around it? That's called the airy pattern. And if you see that, you know you're doing really good adaptive optics. So this uh, wonderful video I'm going to show you is actually based on the Gemini telescope, but it shows the whole process. So we're going to zoom in here on the instrument, and you're going to see these uh, uh, corrupted wavefronts coming in. They look like potato chips in this animation. And you're going to see this system using something called a wavefront sensor to measure the amount of, of deformation and calculate the correct shape to put on this deformable mirror to take out that deformation. And when that happens, you'll see that swarm of speckles turn into that sharp image. So here comes the light. And now they're going to actually look at a star. And you see that swarm of speckles over there. And so the wavefronts that are coming in are actually these potato chip looking deformed wavefronts. And so now we have this system that closes the loop, and now this mirror is moving, fixing the wavefronts, and then it's going to go back and look at, this, at the, the, the image, and you'll see that swarm of speckles turn into that beautiful image. Here and all. I think I have plenty of time, so I'll play it again just so that we can... Well, you sort of can, um, but I wouldn't spend your money on it unless you have a really big telescope. You have to have a pretty large aperture before this is important. Uh, so when you're, you know, a typical backyard telescope, this will only help a little bit. It's when we get to these six and a half, eight, 25 meter telescopes that we really need this. So here we go. So this. This is a very cartoony version of what it looks like. But the, the key thing here is we have this sensor down here, which is a separate camera that's measuring that crinkle. And not shown here is a gigantic computer doing a bunch of calculations. We send this to this uh, very special mirror, and we fix those wavefronts. And all this is going on 1,000 times a second, all night, every night, when we're on the telescope, except when it's cloudy. So when you go back to this image with this one arc second circle and this blurry, horrible image because of the twinkling, and you turn on your AO system and you zoom in even more, you get an image like this. And right there is this faint little planet called Beta Pictoris B. And that's what adaptive optics lets you do, is it gets rid of that, that swarm of, of light that, that is blocking your view of this planet. And after a bunch of signal processing, you end up with this, this little smudge that is a planet. Um, and this is a, about a 12 Jupiter mass planet, so it's 12 times heavier than Jupiter. It's orbiting its, its star at about the distance of Saturn. And it's actually pretty close. And we uh, took this image with the Magellan Clay Telescope. These are the twin Magellan telescopes. Each one has a 6.5 meter or 21 foot mirror that was made here at the, at the Mir Lab in the oven, and it's uh, the oven that you've seen if you've taken a, a tour, and it, they're down here at Las Campanas Observatory, Chile. 
And this is an image of our adaptive optic system on the telescope. I told you there's a giant computer. Those are the lights of the computer that we mount on top of the telescope that does all the control of that mirror. And the, this is actually the secondary mirror. It too was polished here at the, at the mirror lab. So this is a very Stewart Observatory mirror lab photo. And of course, we don't just do science. When you have a diffraction-limited 6.5 meter telescope, you can see some amazing things with your eyeball. So this is uh, the PI of Laird Close, a uh, PI of Magellan AO, Professor Laird Close, looking through our eyepiece. So this is the, the highest resolution image that anyone has ever seen with their own eyeball. So if you ever make it to Las Campanas Observatory when we have the eyepiece on, you can come down and, and join the record book. Yeah, so, th so they have a seeing limited eyepiece, which is stunning because it's a giant telescope. But we also have an eyepiece that you can see this, this sharpened, high-resolution image with your eye. It's basically, I didn't actually put this in the, in the, um, in the talk, but our, since the telescope is three times bigger than Hubble Space Telescope, our resolution is three times better than Hubble Space Telescope if we have AO. So that's like if you were an astronaut in space. It's actually like if you were an astronaut in space looking through the James Webb Space Telescope, which is the same size as this, as this uh, telescope. That's not, not the only planet we've looked at. Uh, this is Lick Calcium 15b. Uh, this is a very young planet that's glowing brightly because it's still absorbing hydrogen. Uh, this image was created by, oh, sorry, image was created by Stewart Observatory grad student Kate Follett, and the analysis of it was led by Stewart Observatory grad student Steph Salem, and they published this paper in Nature. This is an entire planet discovered by a Stewart Observatory graduate student, Vanessa Bailey. It's HD 106906b. Um, unfortunately, we can't really come up with more creative names than that. It's like walking around being known by your telephone number. So uh, all three of these images that I've shown you are actually made by Stewart Observatory grad students. So it's a pretty exciting thing that we have these students. Um, I'm sort of bragging about myself because that was my image. But uh, this is what we do here is we train students and they help us build our instruments and uh, do some pretty amazing science. So I'm going to turn to the future now. Anybody know what star this is? It's Proxima Centauri. So this is the closest star to the sun. And it's a pretty special neighbor now, because we now know that it has a planet. So using this radial velocity technique, we were, uh, some, uh, some of our colleagues were able to discover this planet called Proxima Centauri b. And uh, you'll have to uh, follow the black curve. And believe me when I say that all of this data looks really good. That's a pretty good, pretty solid detection, I think. And the special thing about this planet is that it's about as big as the Earth, and it's orbiting in what we call the habitable zone. So it's just the right distance from Proxima Sen that water on its surface could be liquid. But just going back to my earlier point, this is all we know about this planet. This, this plot tells you everything we know. This is the artist rendition that you see at the top of the press release. But it sort of defines what we want to know. But our problem is, this is where we are. We don't know anything. So what we're doing right now is starting to build the instruments in the telescopes that will help us fix this problem. So one of the things we have going on right, right now is called Magellan Adaptive Optics Extreme, or MEGAOX. This is our uh, 3D model that we did, we've done during the design process. And this shows it sitting on the platform at the Clay Telescope. Uh, because it's kind of expensive to render stuff, we left the mirror out. But there's a big piece of glass that sits here in the mirror cell. Sends the light into this new instrument we're building. 
And we're actually doing this. This is a picture taken in my lab just last week showing us assembling this new instrument. This instrument is uh, much more powerful than uh, the existing AO system we have. Instead of 500 actuators, it has 2,000 actuators. And that's, that tells you how much we can deform that mirror. Instead of running at 1,000 times a second, it'll run 3,700 times a second. It will make that calculation and deform that mirror. So we're doing this right now in the lab. This is just down the hall. And this is uh, Professor Close uh, installing an optic in the clean room. In the back there, you can see a couple of students that are hard at work calibrating components of the system, getting ready to put it on the bench. Uh, and so we're, we're getting ready. And this is, uh, I think, probably our, our first best chance to actually characterize that planet called Proxima Centauri b. No, so the, 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 the system that's on there now is actually glass. It's the, it's, um, um, and it's just really thin. So the, the mirror itself is about an 85 centimeters across, and it's just, but the, it's only 1.5 millimeters thick. So you know, if you picked it up by the edges, it would just crack. And, um, and it, we actually, it sits over the telescope. It's the secondary mirror, and it's uh, magnetically levitated off the, off its reference surface, and we sit there and, and push and pull on the magnets. What's going in this system is actually a little piece of silicon. It's only about that big. It's about 20 millimeters across, and it has 2,000 uh, electrodes, basically capacitors on the back, and we, we apply voltages to each one of those, and that's what deforms that little piece of silicon. And, and there's a thin layer of gold over the top of the silicon that, that's actually what reflects the light. And then what you're seeing here is just uh, you know, that there was that cartoon picture of an AO system, and always reality is a lot harder. This is about half of the stuff that has to go on this table to actually make all of that, those scientific images that we're showing. So we're just getting started. And then there's all the electronics, and there's all the wires we have to run, and all the software that has to be written. So, like I said, MAGAO X is going on the six and a half meter uh, Magellan Clay Telescope. I think it's our first uh, good chance to detect Proxima uh, Sen B. But I think what we're really getting ready for, and I'm going to sort of do something you shouldn't do, which is steal my boss's thunder a little bit. Um, we're getting ready for this telescope, the giant Magellan telescope, which Buell's going to, I think, talk about a lot more later. This is a 25-meter telescope made out of seven of those mirrors we make at the Steward Mirror Lab. So this is 83 feet across. And when this is ready, Proxima B is going to be easy. And you, just for scale, notice there's cars and trucks down there, just so you get an idea how gigantic this thing is. So this is what we're working on. This is what uh, my team is getting ready for. This is what, uh, what we want to do with this instrument that we're building. And this video is too big, so my computer. So uh, I will show you how good of a picture we'll get here in a second. So we are right on the verge of finding life on other planets. I think we're a decade away from doing this. And this is a, this is a really exciting moment in the development of science. And right now, though, we're not quite there. This is what we know about extrasolar planets. And just so you don't, you know, to answer the question that was just asked, we're not actually going to take images like those ones of Earth and that artist rendition of Proxima b. This is a much more faithful representation of our problem. 
is that we're going to have to dig out this faint little pale blue dot, a mote of dust suspended in a star beam, and figure out whether or not it has light on it. And this is one of the things that adaptive optics is doing, and this is why we're developing this technique, is really captured by this image with the glare of the sun covering the Earth. Okay, thank you. <laughs>